You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 15, The Cherokee Uprising, War in the West Indies, and Spain Joins the War. The war with the French in North America had pretty much ended with the fall of Montreal in 1760. War continued to rage in Europe, Asia, and Africa, though. Having secured North America, and with the British Navy dominating the Atlantic, William Pitt decided to hit the French even harder in the West Indies. But before he could do that, the British discovered that even a French-free North America still required some military attention. The Cherokee were a fairly large tribe in the South. Generally, they had friendly relations with South Carolina as they sat on the western frontier of the colony. Problems began to grow after a large number of Cherokee traveled up to Pennsylvania in 1758 to help General Forbes capture Fort Duquesne. Back in episode 12, I mentioned that Forbes had treated the Cherokee poorly. They ended up ditching him and heading home with the arms and ammunition that he had provided to them. On the way back home, settlers in western Virginia accused the Cherokee of raiding their farms and taking property. Virginia militia ended up tracking down and killing at least 30 Cherokee warriors, scalping the Indians to exchange for reward money in Williamsburg. When the warriors returned home, ticked off and well-armed, they found that South Carolinians had been poaching on their land, killing off the deer they needed for winter meat and their fur trade. Many Cherokee wanted to exact revenge. A chief named Little Carpenter called for moderation, and in the spring of 1759, he went to meet with the governor of South Carolina to see if he could arrange a payment in compensation for the harm done. Governor Littleton essentially told the chief, You get nothing! You lose! Good day, sir! Frustrated by South Carolina's refusal even to hold serious talks over incursions on their land, angry Cherokee warriors started attacking isolated cabins on the border of Cherokee lands, killing about 30 frontier settlers that summer. In response, Governor Littleton cut off all gunpowder sales to the Cherokee. Since powder was critical to the tribe's ability to hunt, they were divided on whether to go to all-out war or seek an accommodation. In the fall of 1759, another group of moderate Cherokee leaders returned to Charleston to meet with the governor and see if they could work out an arrangement. This time, Littleton responded by locking up the delegation and holding them hostage until the Cherokee agreed to turn over warriors who had killed settlers over the summer. This essentially guaranteed war since Littleton had locked up all the moderate Cherokee leaders, leaving the war faction leaders in charge. The governor sent a large contingent of militia with Cherokee hostages to Fort Prince George in Cherokee country. He demanded the tribes turn over for trial anyone who had killed any colonists before he would release the hostages. But this was not going to happen. 
Cherokee responded by attacking more settlers, killing or capturing more than 100 over the winter. By January 1760, the militia terms were up and smallpox was beginning to ravage the fort. Most of the militia went home, leaving a small winter garrison with the hostages at the fort. The Cherokee continued to besiege the fort on and off, making occasional attacks. When one of these killed the fort's commander, the South Carolinians responded by killing all of their Cherokee hostages. Seeing the situation beginning to spin out of control, Littleton called for raising more troops to crush the Cherokee uprising. Then, in March 1760, he got an appointment to be governor of Jamaica and left the mess for someone else to fix. The Cherokee continued an open warfare along the South Carolina frontier. In addition to Fort Prince George, Indian raids attacked Fort 96, Fort Dobbs, and Fort Loudoun. In April, Colonel Archibald Montgomery arrived with 1,300 British regulars. Joined by several hundred militia, they entered Cherokee country once again. For much of the summer, Montgomery engaged in a series of minor skirmishes. He relieved the forts being attacked and destroyed several Cherokee villages. At what became known as the First Battle of Achoe, the British took about 90 casualties and the Cherokee about 50, although estimates vary. In August, about four months after he arrived, Montgomery marched back to Charleston and set sail for New York, claiming victory and going home. The Cherokee warriors, however, never got the memo that the British had won. From the Cherokee perspective, they had driven the British from their territory. The Cherokee were still very much at war. They had besieged Fort Loudoun deep in Cherokee territory in what is today Tennessee. In August, just as Montgomery's expedition was setting sail for New York, the soldiers at Fort Loudoun agreed to surrender the fort in exchange for safe passage back to Fort Prince George. The Cherokee allowed them out, but did not so much grant them safe passage as much as a head start. A day later, the Cherokee chased down the retreating garrison and attacked them. The Indians killed about 25 soldiers, including the fort commander, who they scalped while alive and then tortured to death. The Cherokee then took the surviving 200 men as prisoners. Despite their military success, the Cherokee were running drastically short on food and supplies, particularly ammunition. They could not get any neighboring tribes to ally with them, as they became more isolated over the winter of 1760-61. In the spring of 1761, Major James Grant, the same officer who had been captured in an ambush near Fort Duquesne in 1758, and who had also served under Colonel Montgomery in South Carolina the year before, led 2,800 soldiers into Cherokee country once again. Again, they met a force of about a 1,000 warriors at what became known as the Second Battle of Achoe. The battle again was bloody on both sides. But what's most important is the Cherokee used up most of their remaining ammunition. They were no longer able to engage the British at the same level they had before. For the next few months, Grant's plan was to make the Cherokee feel the full wrath of the British military. Grant's men burned any crops or buildings they could find. They took no prisoners, immediately executing any Cherokee who fell into their hands. In total, Grant destroyed at least 15 villages, an estimated 15,000 acres of Cherokee crops, and an unknown number of people. By August, the Cherokee were ready to sue for peace. Once again, Little Carpenter met, this time with Major Grant, at Fort Prince William. 
the Cherokee agreed to release any prisoners they held, as well as any captured livestock. They also agreed to move the Cherokee border 26 miles further inland, giving up a big chunk of their territory. They signed a final peace agreement in December 1761, formally ending hostilities. The British essentially won, but the Cherokee had reminded them that they were a force to be respected, and they could make life miserable for the colonists if they were pushed too far. And unlike the French, they were not going anywhere. For the British, the Cherokee uprising was a minor distraction. Pitt really wanted to put his focus on the West Indies, what we today call the Caribbean, where slave-covered islands produced massive wealth in the form of sugar and spice. With the French Navy now in tatters, these French colonial islands made relatively easy targets. In 1759, the British had attempted a half-hearted attack on the French island of Martinique. The island of Martinique remained under French control, but the British did capture the nearby island of Guadalupe. After the destruction of the French Navy at Quiberon Bay, the British Navy had the upper hand and in 1761 also captured the small island of Dominica. While the French garrison put up resistance, the British quickly overran them and took control of the island. Once the British took control, the civilians seemed content with the relatively generous terms of surrender. The French-speaking inhabitants could continue to live as they had, speaking French and practicing their Catholic religion. They just had to swear loyalty to King George. After that, trade actually improved as they got access to other British markets to sell their produce from their coffee plantations. In 1762, Pitt decided to up the game once more, sending an expedition to capture the larger island of Martinique along with St. Lucia, Grenada, St. Vincent, and Tobago. These French islands were highly profitable sugar plantations that provided a valuable source of income for France. So rather than have British forces sit around in winter garrisons in Canada, now that the French had left, Pitt decided to use them in the Caribbean for profit. Robert Montkin, his wounds from Quebec now healed, led a detachment of 8,000 regulars and American militia to Martinique in January 1762. By early February, Montkin's forces defeated the French garrison and secured the island for Britain. Soon thereafter, the British took St. Lucia, St. Vincent, Tobago, and Grenada. In each case, the locals willingly accepted the new government and benefited from trade restrictions within the British mercantile system. Pitt, however, would not lead Britain for the final stage of the war. Pitt's increasingly aggressive war policies were in clear conflict with those of King George III, who wanted to wrap up the war as quickly as possible. The king wanted his own man in government, a Tory leader named John Stuart, the third Earl of Butte. In 1755, Butte had become the tutor for the future King George III. The two became close confidants and political allies. The king saw Pitt and Newcastle as his grandfather's men still pushing his grandfather's policies. He had wanted to replace them, but could not simply remove them while they were winning a popular war. In late 1761, Pitt saw that Spain was about to enter the war. He pushed for Britain to declare war on Spain first so that they could take the initiative. Butte had begun attending cabinet meetings at the king's request despite having no official position in the administration. Butte unofficially serving as voice of the king, 
opposed expanding the war. Following Butte's lead, most of the cabinet also opposed Pitt. Supporting the king's view that the war needed to be ended, not expanded, was the ever-increasing concern of cost. The national debt had risen to over £130 million sterling, nearly double what it was at the beginning of the war. By modern measure, the debt was more than 150% of British GDP. Lenders were becoming more reluctant to finance the debt with the Bank of England and were demanding higher interest rates. With the war still bleeding millions each year, Newcastle was concerned that the slightest financial panic could bring down the whole economy. So although Newcastle had developed a good working relationship with Pitt over the last few years, he opposed Pitt's plan for war. And with that, Pitt decided he was too isolated. In October 1762, Pitt tendered his resignation to King George. With Pitt's departure, the ministry needed a new leader for the House of Commons. And they settled on George Grenville. Grenville was a political ally and brother-in-law to Pitt. It would not be readily apparent to Britain's enemies how much this leadership change indicated a change in British resolve to continue the war effort. The British needed to appear willing to continue the war in order to ensure good terms in a final treaty. Grenville, however, would be more focused on getting the deficit under control and looking for an opportunity to end the war even as Britain continued to take more enemy territory and prosecute the war on the continent and around the world. Prime Minister Newcastle would not remain in power much longer either. Bute and his Tory allies began to undercut Newcastle at Treasury. Finally, a frustrated Newcastle told the king that he would have to resign if this did not stop. The king's response was essentially, Well, I guess you'll be leaving then. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. This time, Newcastle retired permanently. He would continue to serve in the House of Lords, but would never again be Prime Minister. At last, the king had an opportunity to install his friend, Lord Bute, as Prime Minister. The British government would now be run by a Tory Prime Minister for the first time since King George I came to power nearly half a century earlier. Aside from being a Tory, Bute was an outsider in English politics. He was a Scot by birth and upbringing, and his family was not closely tied to the London establishment. His only grasp on power was his personal close relationship with the king. Nevertheless, he shared the king's view that Britain needed to wrap up the war and get its debt under control. Bute advised Prussian King Frederick, later called Frederick the Great, to wrap up his war with Russia and Austria as Britain wanted to close off the spigot of military aid. Frederick essentially told him to buzz off, and literally what he said was, quote, Learn your duty better, and take note that it is not your place to proffer me such foolish and impertinent advice, end quote. After that slam, Bute actually reached out to the enemy, the new Russian Tsar Peter III, asking him to keep his troops in the field against Prussia in order to force Frederick into peace negotiations. Tsar Peter, despite being at war with Prussia, was actually an admirer of Frederick, and Peter ended up sending Bute's note to Frederick, who then had even more reason to loathe a supposed ally who was corresponding with the enemy against him. Any possibility there might have been for a working relationship between Bute and Frederick was now completely dead. Back in Russia, though, Tsar Peter's Prussian fetish did not win him any friends at home. 
A few months later, his own wife, Catherine, later Catherine the Great, overthrew her husband and renewed Russia's war with Prussia. In Britain, despite having a king and a prime minister who wanted to end the war quickly, actually ending the war was proving impossible. Pitt's policy of capturing more colonies around the world was still rolling on its own momentum. And it's pretty hard politically to tell your armies and navies to stop winning so much. Other European powers now began to fear that the British Empire would soon come to dominate the continent. By this time, France knew it was in serious trouble of losing valuable real estate around the world permanently. King Louis had finally convinced his cousin, King Charles III of Spain, to enter what was called the Family Compact in August 1761, promising support for France in its war with Britain. While still officially neutral, Spain promised to enter the war, if not over, by May 1762. As I mentioned before, Pitt had gone nuts over this agreement and wanted to go to war with Spain in the fall of 1761. The government refused, and he ended up resigning over the issue. Despite Pitt's departure in October, by November, the new administration sent an ultimatum to Spain, demanding that Spain declare it would not ally itself with France in the war, or Britain would consider the two countries at war immediately. Having heard nothing, Britain declared war on Spain on January 4, 1762. By the time Spain responded with its own declaration on January 18th, British ships were already en route to take Cuba. And London also sent orders to India to dispatch a British force to take the Philippines. So rather than wrapping up the war as he hoped, the British actually added a new enemy combatant and opened up several more sections of the world for battle. Spain invaded Portugal in May, obliging the British to provide troops for its allies' defense. A British force in Portugal, led by Lord Loudon, who had failed in North America years before, led an effective defense against the Spanish assault on Lisbon. A daring young brigadier named John Burgoyne helped by destroying several Spanish supply bases. Burgoyne had the capable assistance of a highly effective and newly promoted lieutenant colonel named Charles Lee, who had fought at Fort Caroline a few years earlier. Remember those names as we will be seeing them again in a few years. While the British fought Spain to a stalemate in Portugal, another force of 12,000 descended on Havana, Cuba. Havana was the hub of the Spanish colonial system in America. Britain controlled the Atlantic, but the fortress defenses to Havana Harbor were impregnable to any fleet. As a result, the British had to land several miles away and assault Havana by land. The British landing began on June 7, 1762. George Capel, the Earl of Albemarle, led the British force joined by 2,000 more as General Monckton deployed from Martinique. Under capable field officers, including Colonel Guy Carleton and Colonel William Howe, the British Army launched an effective siege against Havana. Cuba's greatest threat, though, was disease. After one month, about 1,000 British soldiers were dead from yellow fever, malaria, and other tropical illnesses. Another 3,000 were incapacitated by illness, and the lack of clean drinking water became a major problem. By late July, 4,000 more reinforcements arrived from North America, about half regular army and half colonial militia. And again by mid-August, Havana had fallen to the siege. But the tropical diseases continued to take their toll. Nearly one half of the invading British force succumbed to disease. 
Unfortunately for the British, Cuban civilians accepted the new government under generous surrender terms that allowed them to carry on their lives much as before and to take advantage to new access to British trading partners. It appeared that Britain had put another large and valuable colony into its empire. Next week, Britain finally ends the war with the Treaty of Paris in 1763. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.